Good morning, SBC. It is my privilege and pleasure to be bringing the word to you this morning. I just want to say thank you to John and the worship team. That was absolutely beautiful. And so I want to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. You guys are awesome, and I'm sure, no doubt, an absolute blessing in your households. For today, what we're going to be doing is we are continuing in our series in the book of Philippians. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. Before we get there, though, you, if you were with me or with us last week, you will have heard Mark Wood preaching on the end of Philippians chapter 1. And he had this core takeaway of there is salvation and suffering that is always a combined package. Now, we would love that to not be the case. We'd love to just become Christians, and then we go, we've got the God of the universe on our side, and everything just gets sorted out, and there's no more pain and suffering. But we find that that's not actually the case, that there will be pain and suffering mixed in with this incredible salvation that we now get to enjoy. And what you will have noticed at the end of Philippians chapter 1, Paul is addressing external pressures and trials and hardships coming into the church. It is people who are not Christians busy oppressing the Christians. So when he goes and he says, do not be put off by your opponents, but rather show unity. He says, because your unity shows them their destruction and your salvation. And so there are two very distinct camps or groups of people that Paul is addressing there. But for today, what Paul is addressing in Philippians chapter 2 is trials, pressures, and hardship that takes place within the church. It is those who are actually quite close to us that can sometimes cause the most harm. And some of us have this idea that just because the church has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, that all of a sudden everything's going to be perfect in the church. And that's not always the case, because it's made up of people like you and me. And so this side of eternity, the church is not going to be perfect. We strive with all that we can to be like the head who is Christ, who is perfect, but we don't always get that perfectly right. And so we're going to be going into Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let us pray. Lord, we want to run well for you this morning, and we want to learn about how it is that we deal with conflict that happens within the church. Lord, we want to know what it is that makes us unified. What is it that humbles us and keeps us in a spirit of humility so that we might serve you fully? And I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, speak through me. But Lord, would you give all of us ears to hear your voice to us this morning. I ask this in your name. Amen. My first point for this morning is that salvation includes suffering, but it also includes Christ. And what you will notice is that you might have, you might have heard last week's sermon and gone, it includes suffering as well as salvation, but now we don't know quite where this leaves us. When Jesus goes and he lines up his disciples to give them the Great Commission, he is very careful about how he presents this mission. He could have lined up his disciples and said, you know what, you're going to be stoned, you're going to be stabbed, 
you are going to be crucified, gets to Peter, you're going to be crucified upside down. And it would not have been very encouraging to these disciples about to go and try and take this message to the world. But instead, Jesus, as he is raised from the dead, he lines up his disciples and he says, behold, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I am king. Nobody challenges my rule. Not even death could hold me down. And now in this authority, I send you. Go out to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and take this gospel to them. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. A lot more encouraging than if he was just completely uh, honest with them about their sufferings. And so, yes, there is suffering that's going to take place in this salvation, but there is also the Lord Jesus Christ who's walking with you at every step of the way. And so Paul opens up Philippians chapter 2 with the question, is there any encouragement in Christ? Have you received any sort of encouragement or comfort or love, participation in the Holy Spirit of God? And if you have, how does it affect the way that you walk? A way that we can look at this is if we just glance back from where we have come from, and that being the Garden of Eden. You look at the first Adam, he had been given everything perfectly, he had relationship with God, he would walk in the cool of the day with God. And in this paradise that he is handed, he squanders it. He is disobedient to God. He rebels against God. And as a result, they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. That relationship with God gets severed. They do not walk with him any longer. But what we see is that Jesus Christ thematically in two other gardens goes and redeems what what Adam had lost for all of us. We go and we see that in one of these gardens, the Garden of Gethsemane, we find that Jesus is completely obedient even to the point of death. So while he's busy sweating drops of blood, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Where the first Adam was found in the garden saying, not your will, but mine be done. I'm going to do whatever I want, even if that means that everybody after me is going to be absolutely crushed and death enters the world. Instead, Jesus goes, even though it crushed me, I will be completely obedient. Not my will, but yours be done. And the next garden we see Jesus in is a beautiful garden that he steps into after he has completely conquered death. And he rises from the dead and he is found there. And again, we see a few similarities here is that the first Adam, when he brings death into the world, he runs off and he hides. He doesn't want to face God or anybody else. He runs off, hides, covers himself. He's filled with shame. And yet what we see in Jesus Christ is that after he's been raised from the dead, He goes and he shows himself publicly to as many people as he can. And he is a life giver instead of introducing death into this world. And so when you go and you consider Christ and all that he has brought for you into this world, you need to ask yourself these questions that Paul is asking. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Is there any comfort for your soul knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ holds you firmly and steadfastly? In such a way that even if you sin, even if you backslide a bit and you struggle, it doesn't mean that you cast out of God's family. You didn't purchase your salvation. Jesus did. And he did that knowing how you would live, knowing exactly what your shortfalls and your weaknesses are. And yet he still chooses you and he covers you with his own blood. Such a beautiful verse. I believe it's Romans 5.8. He says, in this we know that God loves us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I just want you to consider 
that if that's how much Christ loved you while you were still a sinner, estranged, cast off from God, consider how much God loves you now that you have been brought close to God, that you have been sanctified and rescued from hell. He loves you, church. And so what Paul is, is doing here is he's incorporating a certain teaching style that we see Jesus incorporate. And that is, you, you see it in one of the parables that Jesus tells about the unforgiving servant, where this unforgiving servant owes a radical amount of money. It's 10,000 denaria, also known as 200 billion rand. We have questions about how he managed to rack up a debt like that, but he did. And he gets forgiven of all of it. And the end result of this parable is, if you have been forgiven of so much, now go out and forgive. It seems to make sense. It flows logically. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, have you received any sort of encouragement from Christ? Go out and encourage your Christian brothers and sisters. Have you received any sort of comfort from knowing that your soul and God of all creation are connected? That should you die, you will go to heaven for all of eternity. Does that encourage you? Go out and encourage and comfort your Christian brothers and sisters. Has the Holy Spirit of God who makes his home within you, who searches out the depths of God and searches out the, the depths of your own character, has he participated in your life? Go out and participate in the life of your Christian brothers and sisters. He's speaking about unity within the church, but he starts off with us first reflecting on the beauty of Christ. It is as we gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ that all of a sudden we begin to get transformed more and more into his image. My second point for this morning is that we are united by love. Paul explains all that we've received within Christ, but now he goes and he speaks about a unity that needs to exist within the body of Christ. And this is what he says in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So in a word, in a, a phrase, it is unity within the body of Christ. See, Paul goes and he considers all that we've been called to as Christians, and he says, there's no ways that you will ever be able to do this by yourself. If you go and you look at the great commission that Jesus gives to the church, go out, reach every nation, every tribe, every tongue, regardless of how big or how strong a certain local church is, they will never accomplish it alone. And so he says, there's going to need to be unity amongst us. We cannot be trying to squabble and fight over positions or power or anything like that. We need to love each other. Let this unity bring us together so that we can accomplish the mission that God sets before us. And this is an echo of another prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. While his disciples are busy falling asleep in the background, can't even stay awake to pray with Jesus. This is what he prays in John chapter 17, verse 11. And then I'm going to jump down to John chapter 17, verse 20 to 23. He says, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Wow. You know, we could justify not getting along if Jesus was praying and saying, please let them try to get along with each other. Please let them just in front of each other put on a, a kind face to make it look like things are going well, but he doesn't say that. He says, let them be one, even as you, God the Father, and me, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit are 
one. Let them, the church, be one. He continues in verse 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only. It's not just about the disciples, but about us as well. It says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It's you and me. It's the church that is born. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you have sent me. And love them even as you loved me. Clearly, what is on the heart of Paul, what is on the heart of Christ, what I believe the Holy Spirit would say to us today, is that this verse speaks about a unity that exists amongst us as believers. And it's a unity that is not just a superficial thing. It's not just put on. It's not just a unity that happens on Sunday for an hour as we see each other and we rub shoulders with each other around the church, but rather we have this understanding that we are the church. And so as we go out into the world and we see a brother or sister in Christ, we go, that person has been redeemed by the same Savior that redeemed me. He is, or she is part of my spiritual family. Verse 2 continues. Paul says, having the same love. Now, if there is a, a way for two people to come together really quickly, it is when they have the same love. You may have noticed when, when you figure out what is filling a person's heart, then all of a sudden, out of the fullness of their heart, their mouth speaks. And so you'll figure out very quickly what this person really loves by what they're saying. And you'll find that if there are two people who have the same sort of love, then very quickly, they'll speak about it and they'll just go on and on for hours. I have two mates who love football, and I haven't watched a game in my life. You just watch them, they can talk all day about how amazing football is, and it's this team against that team, and this coach is buying uh, that player, or whatever it might be. But the barriers get dropped. What about when you see two runners speaking to each other? I thought running was simple. I thought it was left, right, controlled falling until you have a mini heart attack as you finish. Apparently not. There's more to it. What about fishing, surfing, CrossFit, being a vegan? If they find each other out there in the world, all of a sudden, there is these wonderful conversations that take place. And the reason why this is important is because Paul says having the same love amongst you. Because the greatest love that a Christian has is his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as you go and you meet somebody else and you are, yes, this person gets it. This person also loves Jesus. They also love God's word and apply it to their lives. They are also participating in what the Spirit is doing in their life. We lower our barriers and our boundaries to the other people around us. We go, I'm on mission with that person. I will work with them for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will no longer hold on to my own sort of sense of identity and try and push other people away and, and live semi uh, with them, but rather I'm going to give myself fully for my Christian brothers and sisters. And I want you to, to think about it this way. If I was to tell you that after the service, what we're going to do is we're going to try and stand on that side of the parking lot and we're going to try and make sure that sand, we're going to hurl it to try and get to that side of the parking lot, to hit some sort of a target. I know that we'd have many people here who would go there and they would try and take handfuls of sand and hurl it with all their might, hoping and praying that maybe a single grain would be carried by the wind and maybe 
touch a target on that side. That is what it looks like when we're all just doing our own thing. We don't connect with each other or the ministries that the church is bringing forward to us. We just try it all in our own strength. But what we could do, maybe with a few tools, is we could heat that sand up so that it becomes glass. We could fashion it into a glass javelin. And when it's all facing the same direction, when all those bonds have broken down and now become one, we'd be able to hurl a glass javelin across the parking lot so that it hits the other side. If we want to make it a whole lot simpler, we could say we could even just mix some water in with the sand and make a a mud ball, which will make it to the other side. The purpose is that that heating element that makes that glass javelin or that water that brings the soil together to make one thing is the love of Christ. It is the heat and the warmth of the love of Christ that is going to melt these boundaries and these barriers that we have between each other so that we can be most effective for Jesus. My third and final point for today is that life in the Spirit leads to a right estimation of who we are. After Paul has explained what it looks like to be united in Christ and we've, we've dwelt on how amazing it is to know Jesus, he now starts shifting into well, what about humility? So this is what he says in verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Life in the Spirit will humble us. What we have as human beings is this natural tendency to make much of ourselves, to place ourselves in the number one position, to try and elevate ourselves so that everybody would look at us and go, aren't we amazing, aren't we great? But life in the Spirit will quickly humble you and say that it's not about you. Your life is about the one who has redeemed you. And Paul is being very practical here. Paul is not saying don't be ambitious. He's not saying just, live your life as a jellyfish and don't get anywhere. He's saying, do not fall into selfish ambition. There's a difference between being ambitious and selfish ambition. See, if you're ambitious, you're looking for ways to glorify Jesus, to work for the Lord. You may be pressing into wisdom and counsel from people in your church of how to do that. But selfish ambition says, it's all about me. It's all about making a name great for myself. But he says, no, do nothing from selfish ambition. What does it look like for selfish ambition to thrive? It looks like King Louis XIV. And I'm pretty sure that none of you or very few of you have heard of King Louis XIV. And I'm glad that that's the case. Because this man tried his whole life to make his name great. So much so that he even called himself Louis the Great. Well, everybody in the background is probably going, no, you're not. And he was, he was a French king. He had one of the longest reigns in modern European history. He reigned for 72 years. And he, under his reign, was able to consolidate power. He turned France into an absolute powerhouse in his day. But he was also an arrogant and miserable human being. He was not a very happy person. And what he did is as his days were starting to come to an end and he knew he would die soon, he had a long, elaborate list of things that he wanted to happen when he died. He wanted everybody to follow them perfectly to the T. And he had chosen out a chapel where he could manipulate how light would come into this chapel so it would look a certain way. He had covered his his coffin with gold. He had inlaid the inside with gold. 
And what would happen is on the other side of the coffin would be one solitary candle. And so they would light the candle and the light from the candle would bounce onto this coffin and illuminate the whole room. So it would look like it was his coffin that was just lighting up the whole room. You can see this guy was filled with pride. He wanted everybody to think it was all about him. And he had a long list of nice things that he wanted people to say about him, of all the great deeds that he did. And in the end, he dies. And the show starts. The candle is lit. He's brought in in his golden coffin. And it illuminates the room. It looks a bit strange. But as this all happens, Bishop Maslan walks up to the pulpit and he licks his fingers and he extinguishes the candle. And out of the darkness, you hear Bishop Maslan saying, only God is great. Only God is great. And this man had made his, his whole life all about himself and making his name great. And Bishop Maslin just brings the whole of France back to this realization that it is not about a single authoritarian figure setting himself up over other people. You are just a man. But there is a God in heaven and his name is great. He is the one to be worshipped. It's so different from the life of King David, for example, from the Old Testament. You see King David being taken from a shepherd boy and elevated to the position of a king over the whole of Israel. When he gets to this point, he doesn't start dusting off his robes and saying, did you guys see how I did that? He says, it is only because of God. He took me out of the miry clay and set me on a solid rock. He is the one who has redeemed my soul. And so all worship and praise is to flow towards God and not to me. Because if we live our lives like King Louis, what we're going to find is that when we exalt ourselves, it leads to an abuse of others around us. So often when there is hurt and hardship and pain that goes on that affects the unity of a church, it's because there's a person who is elevating themselves over and above everybody else and there's no love and care and humility and unity that goes on within the church. Paul writes these things so that we would not just look to ourselves. We would not just think that I'm the most important person and forget about the people around us, but that we would have unity that flows from humility as well. And so it's practical what Paul is teaching us today. What you will find as a human being is that when you are stretched, when life is getting tough, we tend to become a lot more selfish, don't we? We tend to pull things towards ourselves when we are struggling. We tend to block people out and, and push some people away from us because we don't want them to pull anything else from us. And yet, what we see in the life of Christ demonstrates a different dynamic at work. When Jesus is most pushed, most struggling, when he's busy being crucified, we see that instead of him pulling towards himself while he's hanging there, he's praying for the very people who've crucified him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What about the way that Jesus has a conversation with a thief who is also busy being crucified next to him? And the end result is that this thief is told by Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. And so if we just look at the example that Jesus sets, we'll see that we're not to just pull everything towards ourselves and make it all about ourselves, ask people out and justify it by saying, oh, I'm just doing this in the name of self-preservation. But rather, we are to count others as worthy of our time and our efforts and our love as well. 
Verse 4 continues. Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is not saying don't care about yourselves. He, he knows that we would do that even if that was written. <laughs> we are going to care for ourselves. But he's saying don't only care about yourself. But once you've met your needs and everything's going well for you, would you just glance around and see who else maybe has some needs that need to be met? And the best way I can explain that is if you think about what happens when you go on a flight and they come and they explain what happens when those oxygen masks uh, flop down and there's been a bit of a breach in the oxygen. They say, quickly make sure that you put your own oxygen mask on. And then afterwards, once you are set, sorted, you start looking for the people around you who also need help with their oxygen mask to be put on. How unloving it would be if you were in that situation and you put your own oxygen mask on and then you sit back, fold your arms, and you are content while people are suffocating in the background. Once you have taken care of your own needs, look to the people around you. Look to the people within your church. Pray for other churches that there may be who are struggling. But look to others as well. As I wrap up this morning, perhaps you find yourself in one of about three camps. One of those camps is you've maybe heard about the encouragement, comfort, love of Christ and the participation of the Holy Spirit. And you're saying, I don't know if I actually have that yet in my life. Today can be the very first time where you can experience that. It's not just some sort of an academic understanding of who Jesus is, but actually he invites you to come into relationship with him. And you do that by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody's excited about that. <laughs> For some of you, you may be hearing this, this message about the unity within the, Christ, in, within the church and you're saying, I've actually been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by other churches, maybe even this one. It's not so easy to move forward. I know, it's not easy. And I'm really sorry that you have gone through with that and you've, you've been hurt by the church. But I want you to also consider that you and I who make up the church are not perfect. And sometimes we make mistakes, but sometimes we even do things disobediently, sinfully against the Lord, and it ends up with people being hurt, would you look to the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and say, I want to be like him. And he, he wants us to be part of each other. You heard his prayer from John 17. You heard how he wants unity within the church. And maybe today is the day where you say, I'm going to forgive that person, and I'm going to plug in fully at this church. And maybe, and I think this may be where most of us are landing this morning as we're going, this is a glorious vision. This is wonderful to be part of the mission that God gives us. But now those bonds need to just be melted away by the love of Christ so that we can be like this glass javelin that gets picked up and hurled into different missions that God gives us. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for the way that you have handpicked us, for the way that you love us, not because we are good or perfect people, we aren't, but we are saved by your grace and by your love. And Lord, we aren't just saved and then sent on our way off to heaven, but Lord, we are saved into your wonderful family here in the church. Lord, I pray for unity amongst this church, amongst the, the three services that there are, amongst us and the other advanced churches, I pray that we would cover our brothers and sisters in prayer 
But Lord, I also pray that you would use us mightily. Lord, may there be a humility that exists amongst ourselves, that it's not Lord positions over each other or think that we're better than people around us. I pray that you would give us this humility, that you'd keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, as we run this race. I ask this in your wonderful name. Amen. Guys, it's been a pleasure. I believe that there is coffee waiting for you. I just want to remind all the fathers, there are bookmarks waiting for you. I think they're at the back. I'm not too sure which side. Have a wonderful rest.